my name's Karen O'Connor and you're listening to Menopause, Marriage and Motherhood, the podcast that looks at all aspects of women's lives from hormones and health to relationships, finance and social justice issues. You can connect with me on social media at at karen If you enjoy this podcast or podcast in general and you've been wondering whether you should start your own podcast, head on over to speakuppodcasting.com to find out just how easy and cheap it is to start podcasting. Now let's get right into it. Hello and welcome. I'm here today again with Pamela Anderson. Welcome again. And Thank this, you, Karen. Nice to see you. I know. So I had so much fun talking to you last time. I reached out to Pamela from a very, and I'm going to talk for a few, I've asked Pamela if it's okay with her. I want to create the context for this because it hit me in the face recently that when I try to talk to certain men about sexism, they just don't get it. And then I thought, huh, if they're like that, am I the same about racism? Because I always say, no, I'm not racist. Just like those men say, they're not sexist. But am I actually, is the racism so ingrained in our culture and society and the things we do that I actually can't see it? So I reached out to Pamela knowing that it's not her duty, her obligation to instruct me on racism, but she kindly agreed to join in the conversation. And I'm so grateful, I can't tell you. So just wanted to get that out there before we spoke, because here's the thing, structural racism. I'd never heard of that term until a few weeks ago. I'm sure you know all about it. Talk to me about your background, first of all. Tell me about who you are. Thanks, Karen. I suppose what qualifies me as a light-skinned person to actually be speaking about racism is that I do have First Nations heritage. So I'm a First Nations woman, which is an Aboriginal Australian woman. So I've got family connections to the mob, which is in Shepparton. My grandmother and great-grandmother both did women's business there and also to Lake Tyres in Gippsland in Victoria. Um, my grandmother and um, great-grandmother also did women's business there and had their babies there and all those type of things which were connect us to that um, particular spot, those particular spots. And I suppose uh, our family's been con- uh, impacted by dispossession. My ancestors, uh, first people of Australia, were moved off their traditional lands into mission stations usually and then often broken up further from there as a plan and as a way to um, assimilate which was a policy of the time, an assimilation policy, which was designed to breed us out. That is unfortunately the dark history of Australia and a history that I think a lot of people find quite confronting. No one's blaming anyone who's alive today, just for the record, but it is something that I think we need to talk about so that we can actually then move forward. And it's important for me sharing my story as much as it breaks my heart every time I have to talk about the fact that we know our family was treated so poorly, we lied. So my grandmother lied about being a First Nations person. She would tell people that she was Italian because it was better to be called a wog and all these other things and to have your children removed. And often children were removed not because the parents were bad or not because the parents were not looking after them properly, but just simply because they were Aboriginal or half Aboriginal or, yeah, 
So that was, there was no true reason for removing those children other than that to try and assimilate into white society because that would have been, that's better for everybody is what that pretense was way back when. And unfortunately, children are still being removed to this day. Stolen generation does continue. Stolen generation refers to the child protection policy for that was introduced in Australia after colonisation. And uh, even though that policy has been disbanded, um, there are still um, removals at a great rate, a faster rate than any other um, nationality in our country today. A couple of years ago, I read the book GERT, G-I-R-T, which, and that's taken for people who aren't in Australia, that's taken from our national anthem. Our home is GERT by sea. And it's just a word that every school child goes, what does that mean? Because nobody uses the word good anymore. But when I read that history of what had actually happened when the British colonised Australia, I was just distraught at that's what they did. I think the colonisation of Australia is the worst in British history in terms of how they treated the Indigenous people. They went over to New Zealand and had a treaty with the Kiwis, with the Maoris there. But here, no. And they they actually wiped out, completely wiped out some of the nations, didn't they? Absolutely, yeah. The reason why it's so different here in Australia is because when first settlers or Captain Cook arrived on the shores of Australia, what is now called Australia, it, it was declared terras nullius. That basically, that translates to no man's land in Latin and that's a legal term. So the rule, so back when exploring was occurring and they were able to find uninhabited land, there was actually international law that determined how they had to negotiate with the current settlers or the current people of the land. When they arrived in Australia, it was declared terras nullius and that's many debates as to why that occurred our history our structure in our community we don't have one we don't have a monarch or a king in first nations culture we don't have one head we have like elders a board so to speak almost like a board that come together and share ideas and it's quite a collaborative type of structure so it's not a pyramid type structure that people are often familiar with in, in First Nations uh, culture, it's actually quite flat and it's about sharing and, and bringing and, and sharing sharing knowledge, sharing culture and our elders embrace our younger people to then teach them the ways of, of culture and that's how it's done. So it's not done by a king pushing down, it's actually done quite collaborative. It's actually quite a, a beautiful way of, of sharing and being part of a community. And that's a traditional way of, of our ancestors. So when settlements arrived, there was no leader, so to speak. So take us to your leader. There is no leader, we're all the leaders. We share that position. We're all, so-and-so is good at hunting, so he's in charge of the hunting thing. I'm good at getting the trees, getting the bark of the trees for us to have fire, all those type of things. So it was a different type of structure which people weren't familiar with. And coming from a modern type structure they're looking for the king so that's one theory but there's many other theories which I would could spend hours going through but the main reason why it's different in Australia is because of the declaration of terrorist nullius terrorist nullius meant there was no requirement to negotiate because there was no one here so that was a lie that was incorrect because they were met at the shore by people already living on this land. We know that. We know that there was shots fired at that particular meeting as well. We do know that. To declare it terrorist nullius was incorrect and untrue. That's why the treatment has been different because effectively they declared that there was no one here to negotiate with. And whereas the Maris, they have a bit more of a monarchy type structure, not exactly really. They're a bit more flatter we are. When they arrived in New Zealand, 
they were met with these people who they had to negotiate treaty with. Whereas in in Australia, uh, we're a bit more spread out, obviously, and they declared it terrorist malleus. And then unfortunately, there's a pretty dark history of some awful massacres that occurred. What shocks me is that it's when I look at it now, having read that book and having spoken to a few people, I'm starting to see how much the discrimination, the about 25 years ago, a neighbour came, she moved in next door to me, she was from South Africa, and she said to me that the thing that shocked her, South Africa, having left just after apartheid was disbanded and everything, she said, what I can't get over is how Australians don't see the Indigenous population. It's like their eyes slide over them. Yeah. And I was, that's really stuck with me because it's also true. Yeah. <laughs> it's yeah, true. It is. Like, you go to New Zealand, you can, see the, you can see the traditional culture there when you walk into the airport. The same as when you go to Canada, you see their First Nations. You, you see they're celebrating their traditional cultures there. Even in America, in many ways, you also see their First Peoples cultures celebrated. But you walk into most of the airports in Australia and there's nothing. Maybe there's a from the wall that's it we have the opportunity we have the longest continuing culture in the world 60,000 65,000 plus years there's also in Victoria there's also um, aqueducts that date back tens of thousands of years that have now been heritage listed that shows there was a sophisticated aqua um, fishing um, farming system that scientists still can't believe that's how that how sophisticated it was using rocks and sustainability you think that for 65,000 years this country was well maintained and managed and now now we're facing catastrophic fires, we're facing flooding, we're facing all these other natural disasters where, you know, if First Nations people have been managing this land for 65,000 years, you'd think they'd actually listen to us for a bit and say, hey, did you, have you heard of cool burning? That'll actually, you know, you do it at this time, you do it. And there's so many, so much knowledge that's just not being used, which is really frustrating, which could actually benefit everybody in this country. But yeah, you're right. It, it is looked over. And I, that is, and even people like myself who are fair, and if I say to someone, I'm Aboriginal, they'll go, no, you're not. <laughs> okay. How do you know that, Jeremy? And then they'll say things like, because you don't look it or you don't have the nose that they normally have, which is as ridiculous as saying any other race has a particular feature. It's just ridiculous. Oh, you're white. How can you be black? That's not actually in First Nations culture. That's not how we determine. And we don't determine by percentage either. There's no I'm 5%, I'm 10%, I'm 50%. It is if you are. If you've got a, if you've got a connection to the culture, then you're part of the culture. And we have to get out there and we have to start reclaiming our culture as well but at the same time that comes with discrimination so like I said my grandmother told everyone that she was Italian because she was so it was better for her to tell people that she was Italian because that way she got to keep her house that was a government house and she got to keep her kids wow Do you know I mean? so if this is the history this is why and people say how come only now people are coming out saying that they're Aboriginal my dad who sadly passed away in um, February he was always nervous about us telling people that we're Aboriginal. He was always worried about children being taken away. It would happen, kids would go to school and they, the authorities would come and take them away from the school. This is what happens and it still happens to this day. And the fact that, yes, First Nations people do get looked over, but also it's really hard to stand up and say that you're a First Nations person because you're faced with so much objection. And also, my and I, having said that, I haven't experienced racism to the degree that some of my darker skinned brothers and sisters have and cousins because 
I can walk into a shop and not be followed around. People don't realise that they actually, I don't know if people realise, but they'll start following people with darker skin in a shop around. And especially if they can see that they're Aboriginal, they just assume that they're going to take something that's not theirs. That's not fair. And that's just traumatising these young people especially. And these are the things that are happening to, to, to people in every day. And so it is, it is heartbreaking that someone from South Africa says, how come you overlook or ignore your Indigenous people? They're 100% right. At the same time, Indigenous people, it's hard to stand up and fight against that because the discrimination that comes back your way is tenfold. I've unfortunately been in a situation where I've actually been sitting across the table with someone and they've been saying some pretty awful things about First Nations people. And I said, actually, I'm, I'm one of those abos that you're speaking of. And they're like, oh, really? And I literally saw the look on their face change. And I went, wow, that's what racism looks like. I was thinking yesterday that because this systemic race racism, I think that's the word, that's the phrase, we are, or structural racism, I can't remember what, what, exactly what it is, but it's present in absolutely everything that we can't actually see it. So, for example, I realised yesterday when you go to the doctors and it says, please let us know if you're of Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander heritage. Okay, why do you need to tell them that? Why don't you need to tell them if you're Italian or South African or Filipino? Why, if you're Indigenous, why isn't there a check, like you have to say male or female, why isn't there a checkbox for all the different possibilities so that they can cover it? It's so in our faces that I don't think we can see it, can we? Yeah, and it's those little things too. Unless I agree with you 100%, I've often gone, why do you want to know that? My dad would always say, what do you want to know that for? What difference does it make to the conversation we're about to have? Surely, whether it be maybe it's additional funding that they can get or whatever it may be. But the other thing too, which is really is, is the way that policy is also developed. Aboriginal people are the only race that are actually listed in our constitution where that laws are made about. There's no other race in this country that laws are made about. We have almost segregated bodies that are supposed to look after us we have all these different reasons but don't get me wrong we need a lot of those resources as well because there's a lot of first nations people who are severely disadvantaged living in poverty and do need that extra assistance but there are situations where i agree with you 100 you're like why do you need to know that for here for what difference does that make the only thing i can possibly say is people either seeking additional funding for it because there are a lot of services that do assist First Nations people but then that would be what additional funding would you need for this if it's just going to see for example the GP which should be covered by Medicare by everybody there's a lot of that type of thing that goes on I also think it's too so that people can also use First Nations people and say oh look at us we're servicing three percent of our patients at First Nations aren't we wonderful yes but what else are you doing it's just, it is actually mind-blowing. Talk to me about the Constitution because we started off talking about how the British declared that there was nobody living here. So you were, the First Nations people were in effect just completely ignored. They didn't exist. They were <laughs> non-existent. Yeah. So then when our Constitution yeah. came into place, there is no mention of any natural population to Australia, not at all. <laughs> yeah, so evidently, and I say only having read this 
by other resources. And obviously, I wasn't there at the constitutional time. But apparently what happened is there was actually a conscious decision to leave First Nations people out of the constitution, to not actually recognise them in that document. And that was done intentionally. And that was obviously because terrorist analysis is not true. And that would then prove that it was not true at that point in time. And there could have been, there could have been repercussions back then. But now you're talking to over 230 years later, the, the, same, the same doesn't exist. To, to recognise First People in our culture actually means that we're recognising that, yes, we do have a First Nations culture, which is very rich and very important, and that's it. There is no opportunity to claim anything against the incorrect um, definition of terrorist analysis, which I think is what some people get worried about. But that's, the law actually doesn't support that now. It's been too long. It's been too far down the track and it's just simply not going to occur in any way. But the Constitution does need to change to recognise First Nations people and the reason why it needs to be in the Constitution is because we have had bodies that have um, represented First Nations people in this type of way that the, the current proposal is putting forward. And unfortunately with change of governments or, or change of budgetary requirements, these particular bodies are defunded and shut down. By putting something into the constitution in this matter, which would only be a voice, it'd be very, it'd be quite limited as to what how it would exist. By putting that into the constitution, that now means that it always has to exist. It means that the, the that First Nations people need to be consulted on policy that affects them. So it's not it's not the road. It's not any other. It's not any anything beyond policy that affects First Nations people. So if they're talking about Aboriginal health, for example. Guess who'd be involved in those negotiations, in that policy development? Aboriginal people would be part of that. Do you know what I mean? It, it would be those type of policies and laws. So the constitution is, think of it as like the umbrella that we all live underneath, right? And that's the, having, a rec, having just a recognition in that saying, yes, First Nations people existed and they should be recognised in our constitution. That's it. Off that then, that constitution, you then have all your laws and, and policies and that's where the, the, the meaty stuff comes in, which is changed on a regular basis. The importance of having constitution means that regardless of who's in government, regardless of budgetary restraints, regardless of whatever may be happening, that needs to stay there. It needs to always be recognised. It's, yeah, it's always got to be there. It's like recognising human rights, basically. It's those type of important things. And then the detail comes within law and legislation. That, that is built and developed by Parliament. The Constitution is not a detailed document on purpose. I don't know if anyone's ever, if you've ever run an organisation or association and you have a constitution, you always want to keep it very broad because it allows you to do things and, and to make and change things as you need to and to remain current and relevant. So it's, silly, it's sim similar to a constitution for business. You want to make sure that you're always having something that you can actually move within and you've got enough room to be able to do what you need to do to achieve good outcomes rather than having to go and have referendums or make significant changes all the time. So I'm going to play the devil's advocate here. If sure. our constitution talks about people, why do we need to specifically list out Indigenous First Nations people? Aren't they already covered by the constitution? No, and the reason why constitution why, why it's important to list First Nations people in the constitution is because the only race of people that laws are made against about or against in this country is Aboriginal people. So there's no laws about English people. There's no laws about Chinese people. There's no laws about Italian people. There's no laws about any other nationality in this country other than First Nations, Aboriginal, Torres Strait Islander people. 
They're the only ones that have laws specifically made about us. I'm just mind blown. In saying the uh, New Zealand constitution or the American or Canadian constitution, do they mention their First Nations people or is their whole constitution different? Do you know anything about that? Yeah, I don't know a lot of detail about their constitutions, unfortunately, but I do know that they do have a, a voice structure. I do know that they have a consultation body similar to what we're seeing. So that's in nearly every country. So that's in America, that's in um, Canada, that's in New Zealand, that's in Switzerland and or Norway and all these other countries. They've all got voices to parliament effectively, the same thing that what what's being sought in this at this referendum that we've got coming up. It's exactly, so basically they consult with their on policy and law. It's nothing more that policy and law that affects that cohort of people nothing more and they, and they've been working for a long time i think new zealand's had theirs for years yeah they have i think and why would why would <laughs> why would some first nations people be against the voice and just to let everybody know that's the vote we're having in australia which will be the weekend after this comes out about including an Indigenous voice to Parliament in the Constitution. That's literally all it says. It's one page long. I think it's two paragraphs, isn't it? Something like that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's not even. It's like one paragraph. Yeah, it's very – the reason why – the thing – this is what makes me laugh is this expectation that because of a particular race of people should all be in 100% agreement. Well, that's just ridiculous. And I think the fact that 80% of First Nations people are saying, yeah, we want this, that's a massive majority. No other group or no other organisation is required to have an 80% majority. Like, that's huge. You win an election on – we elect a Prime Minister, we elect our MPs on 51% majority. We're talking 80% majority here. That's huge. But also, I think First Nations people have a very healthy and justified suspicion of government. I think that, and that's fair and reasonable. And it's we have been lied to a lot. We have had policy that has absolutely destroyed our family structures. We have had quite a difficult relationship with a number of governments. And so I think for First Nations people to be wanting to vote no, it's because they just don't trust what they're being said what's being said and it sounds okay we don't really they, they don't they go yeah but where's the catch sort of thing don't really trust you so therefore I'm think I'm gonna I'm gonna sit back and hold out a lot of those people may change their thoughts on the day of the vote we don't know but it, it is something that it's I, I completely understand why some people are saying no it's because they just don't trust they just don't trust the establishments we've been burnt before and so there's really a cautiousness around it Talk to me about what structural racism is or systemic racism, because like I said right at the start, when you're trying to explain to some men what sexism is, they cannot see it. And I suspect that a lot of white Australians feel the same way about racism. Yeah, I Believe it or not, expecting 100% of First Nations, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people to agree on one thing is, is actually systemic racism. It, it, it just, that's an example. Like that, Why would one race of people have to agree on one thing but yet no other race has to agree on it? I think also the systemic is the expectation that people must look a certain way in order to be a particular race is also. People don't realise they're saying it, but it might be when you see fair-skinned people claiming to be First Nations and then people going, oh, I've done their family tree and they're not. 
well, that's actually racism because you're not doing the family tree of the dark eye over there. You're accepting that based on the fact of his skin colour. And what people don't realise is, like I said before, Aboriginality is not based on skin colour. It's based on your, uh, you know, you know, your ancestry and connection to land. And some of that ancestry is really hard to find because in my family, for example, they didn't always they didn't register every child that was born because if they registered, the government knew that they could come and take their babies. So they used to hide the babies. It's, we've got death certificates of people who were never born and birth certificates of people who never died. You know I mean, all these sort of things happen. Multiple name changes of name, all those type of things. So to do it to say for someone external to say I've done a First Nations person's family tree is absolute bullshit because we can't even do our own family trees. Good for you. I would love someone to jump in and do that for me. That'd be great. But that is a form of racism. And I think an expectation of a particular group having to behave a particular way. So the fact that oh, all you'll hear people say things like, oh, haven't we given them enough? And I, I just that, that, I just go, what do you mean? They go, I'm not racist or anything, but don't you think we've given them enough? I said, well, what's enough? What have we given? What have we given them? And also I person, this is a person one of me, as soon as someone says that they, I just go, stop. I don't want to hear the rest of the sentence. Because as soon as you, I think, lump people into a group, and that this is across the board for sexism, racism, homophobia, anything of that type of those horrible things that we all want to try and not be. As soon as you go, hey, I think you should stop yourself because whatever you're going to say might not be a very good thing to say. It might, it might, but you might be starting to step into that line of racism. So I think that's also something to keep in mind of. And I think, yeah, again, there's, there's in Australia, I don't even think it's not even subtle. It's actually in your face the racism. The fact that we're having to have a vicious debate at the moment, the fact that people are physically and verbally being abused if they come out in support of, of First Nations people is shocking. The fact that this country is now cl- claiming to be divided on an issue when in actual fact it's always been divided, it just hasn't been discussed because people are very comfortable to live in their nice homes and have their nice food and their clothes while there's a, a 3% or of the population who claim to be First Nations people, which is about 850,000 people, and a large number of those people, about 50% of those people are living in extreme poverty without fresh running water, in the middle of nowhere, without accessibility to healthcare, with more child mortality rates, more complications in childbirth, child obesity rates off the suicide rates that would make anyone hang their head in shame, and a diabetic, diabetes epidemic. Uh, for, for as long as we sit there and say that's okay, that's systemic racism. I hadn't thought about it in those terms, but what? Yeah, while we're turning, while we go, no, it's not our problem. That's theirs. We have a problem. <laughs> it's just pure racism. It's pure. We have race. a problem. Yeah. Yeah. The fact that we can't see it, it's not in our face. And you'll hear people say things like, there's a lot of first nation people with severe mental health issues. And that comes from not being able to, not being brought up in your family. Imagine being brought up and moved around from foster home to foster home all the time. And so you've never really been brought up with that structure, that family. And then they go, oh, how come they don't do more to make their lives better? Hang on a second. How would you cope? How would you feel? So I think there's that expectation that you get treated like shit, basically, but you should still be able to overcome that. You should be able to do better for yourself. You should make yourself proud. Hang on. That's not exactly right. There's there's a lot of undertone. I, I will always maintain, I'll always say that happy people don't become addicted to drugs or alcohol and happy people also don't end up homeless. If people are on drugs, alcohol or homeless, then there's something there's something wrong and there's something that needs to be done to help. That's a really good point. I hadn't thought about it like that. I remember when the kids were growing up and 
they'd say, oh, but what can we do to help the Indigenous population? And I was like, I don't know. And then the next question was, not why is it my responsibility, but it's like in me saying that I need to do something about it, that's also taking the power away and assuming mm. that they have they're not capable of doing it themselves. I don't know whether I've explained that well, but it's like assuming that they're not good enough. And that was the other thing that came up for me as well. Absolutely. Look, my dad was an incredibly proud man. He worked two to three jobs. He worked uh, three jobs so that my brothers and I could go to good schools. That was something he really wanted for us. He really wanted to make sure that we went to really good schools. And he worked night shift and day shift in, in order to make that happen. I think, um, generally speaking, First Nations people are proud bunch of people they're not shy to work they're hard workers but and, and given the opportunities they're going to they, they step into that space there's also this terrible um thing i once an ex-friend of mine once said that there was a research done and aboriginal people's heads are smaller than everyone else's so they're not quite as smart and i was like okay we used to be friends and she's what i said mm, this is it bye but there's some of those crazy things that people still carry and you just go oh that's flat out racism but they people just don't realize it because we've been allowed to say things like that we've been allowed to all these justify i think justifications for removing children without justification is what's been put in place and so all these crazy ideas that all first nations people are lazy all first nations people are, are not don't have high iqs all first nations people don't want the help we give them everything but they don't want it they just they just want to take money and that's it that's not true of course in any group of people there's going to be a small group of people who are like that but having said majority of the every first nation person i know is hard-working, really intelligent, educated, worked really hard to get where they are and doing an amazing and giving a lot of themselves to the community, whether that be the broader community or the First Nations community. They volunteer, they're doing extra stuff that they don't have to do, but they do it because they want to give back. So there's every First Nations person I know is incredibly impressive. And it's funny that the media only focuses on the things that are going wrong, which is what the media does. But I think in terms of the percentage of population in Australia, it focuses on the First Nations people a lot. Yeah. Like I said, it's 3%, about 850,000 people in this country, the people that we're wanting to help, I think. And that's, yeah, I think, yeah, it's, it's a bit, I think media can be racist as well. I think outwardly racist. We, we've seen it even here with other community groups as well so other other communities have also been impacted by that again that's systemic racism it's okay to put on the people would say gangs right people go oh, african gangs right but yet if it's a bunch of white private school boys gathering together that's not a gang that's just a group of boys gathered together so but yeah a group of african kids or aboriginal kids that's a gang but the same group of a group of the same number of young boys for example who are white or go, that's a group of boys gathering together so i think that's that's the media's, I think, is outwardly racist, really. There's no nothing hidden there, is there, really? No, not at all. Tell me about the stolen generations and why it's still happening. I don't know why it's still happening, but I had no idea it was still going on. Talk to me about that. Yeah, so in Victoria at the moment, there's more kids living in out-of-home care than anywhere else in the world. So more um, First Nations kids living out in out-of-home care than in anywhere in the world. 
that's in the world. So it's I don't there's multiple reasons as to why they're being removed. Look, some kids do need to be removed on that. So there are instances where they do need to be removed. But there's also um, an unfair benchmark also placed, I think, on uh, First Nations families that isn't always placed on on non-Indigenous families. And that is of First Nations um, families have to be at a higher standard than some of those non-Indigenous families. Firstly, Main to keep their kids or to get kids back, and that's where it's it's becoming unfair um, in that sense. And so there's different uh, thresholds, and as to why it's still occurring, it's policy, bad policy that's in place. Uh, it is not consulting with the community to understand culture, and also not working with First Nations people directly to say what do we need to do to help. Instead, what they get told what they need to do. So these really high benchmarks in order to get children back, which if you compare them to, it's ridiculous. Half of them will never ever achieve some of those things. Yeah, <laughs> I don't know why, Pamela. It's just there is such a discrimination there, isn't there? There's and, and what's the word I'm looking for? Yeah. It's, oh, I can't think. Duplicitous. There's double standards. There's such a double standard. There is double standards. Yeah. People often say to me, oh, what do you get for saying you're Aboriginal? And I usually reply, discrimination and racism because you you literally will see people's attitudes change towards you, which is really heartbreaking because I like to think that Australia, I'd love to think Australia is an embracive country and celebrates our multiculturalism. We have so many different cultures in this country and I think we're better for it. And But yet I think the culture that we don't celebrate enough is our own culture it's our first people's culture so it's, I was just yeah. going to say that we celebrate every culture except first nations yeah like we'll celebrate Diwali parade yay that's fantastic celebrate all the other Eden all the other fantastic things that um, go on and when there's fantastic cultures and exciting community events and yet when when we do our NAIDOC marches there's people like oh what are they marching again for we're just doing our culture too we're celebrating our ancestors like it's for me NAIDOC um, march is a really for our family it's a big day we we look forward to it we catch up with lots of people it's we take our photos of our ancestors and and we we walk with pride I I was really so a few years ago, I used to live in Armadale, which is a small country town in the middle of New South Wales, and I stopped outside this house. I was riding my horse, right, and my horse and their pony were going mental at each other, so I just stopped to have a conversation. What really shocked me at the time was the young husband came over to me, first of all, and he was chatty and talking, and then the uncle came over a little bit later But the woman hung back for a long time. And I remember thinking, that's, first of all, taking it on board, it was something about me. And then realizing when I got over myself that had nothing to do with me. And then being shocked that she felt so unsure of the reception she was going to get, who I was, who she was for me, everything else that she did not feel comfortable coming over for a good 10, 15 minutes while I was yak, yak, yakking with everybody else. That I found really sobering, I think is the best way I can put it, because it's 
heartbreaking to think that somebody feels that way, but that's a normal reaction, isn't it? It's an understandable reaction. Maybe not normal is the wrong word, but it's an understandable reaction given the centuries of Australian culture. Australian, don't know what the right word is. Yeah. Everyone's an individual. And so how people will approach different things is, is different. But there's also pe- some people, generally speaking, a lot of um, First Nations people are actually quite shy uh, and introverted. So there's not they may not necessarily be wanting to come forward because they're just wanting to suss out the situation first. But the, a bit over the centuries, the two centuries that um, colonisation, I'm, I'm, I'm 100% sure that there's been more, far more cautiousness about approaching situations that may be in the past. But yeah, it is disappointing that people do feel cautious about wanting to come forward to things. But I also, I like you say, I completely understand it. We're talking about a group of people who've been oppressed for centuries. We're talking about my ancestors who would have been forced into basically one step above slavery, which was domestic duties, those type of things because being half. So they would take them away and train them because they were being assimilated into white culture. So, yeah, there's lots of lots of reasons as to why people would stand back and not wanting to approach a situation uh, hastily. That assimilated into white culture statement is even that makes me go, ooh. <laughs> it should. It yeah. Should. It's, it absolutely should, yeah. Because there's so many assumptions there on so many levels all the way through and there's no choice. That's the other thing that comes up for me when you say that is there's no choice. The only right choice you can do is to assimilate into white culture that uh, because it's the only culture you should be in, really, right? <laughs> yeah, well, the, the, that, the, when colonisation occurred, there was 350-plus different countries so to speak, right? So 350 different mobs or tribes that were operating in their own way and trading with each other and organising marriages between different mobs and working together. And there, was an, there is evidence of active trading as well between the different mobs and all this type. So there's a functioning society, world happening, and each of those had a totally different language. And one of the first things that happened with colonisation is everyone was banned from speaking their language then everyone was banned from practising their culture and then they were moved off their traditional lands. So this is all designed to disrupt and to take over and for people, for a group of people who, mind you, fought all the way. The fact that you don't think that it was walk in and everyone just lay down and said, oh, okay, that's fine. These, our ancestors fought hard and they fought guns against spears and they fought guns against the boomerangs, but they fought hard and uh, unfortunately... You know, a gun, a spear, and a gun, and a boomerang is not going to beat, not going to beat a gun. That's the situation that they were in. But yeah, it's then that's when assimilation laws come in. We're going to now assimilate you. We're going to force you to live a particular way, and we don't care about what your culture is or or where what your language or anything like that. And that what that does to mental health is unbelievable. And we know that intergenerational trauma exists. We know that from the Holocaust survivors. And a lot of us live with intergenerational trauma. A lot of us live with a instilled fear of authority and instilled fear of having children taken away or and, and just this unstable sense all the time. It's That's trauma. And when I see First Nations people drinking too much or having drugs abuse or having a tantrum on the street and screaming and I just go, oh, geez, that's, I don't think that, that, oh, my God, what's so crazy? I think that's trauma. 
that person's having a trauma response. They need help. And like I said, happy people don't have drug addictions and uh, alcohol addictions. And there's a lot of unhappy First Nations people in this country right now who have not got no connection with culture, who have got no um, identity because culture is identity. And as soon as we start to give these things back, because that's really what needs to be given back, is culture and identity. Once these things start coming back, good policy starts coming that's consulted with First Nations people. We have a say on what's going on. We can we can say, no, that's a really terrible policy. That's not going to work for our people because of these cultural reasons. And the more we claim back culture, the more we're going to need to consult to make sure it's within the right cultural framework, the better we're going to be from this. So First Nations people will be better, which means that the lowest benchmark, which is First Nations people right now, if we lift that, every individual in this country benefits. Every individual in this country benefits because the, the worst treated people have come up a notch. We don't lose anything at all. We gain 100% if we help. I think that's a brilliant note to finish on. Thank you so much. <laughs> that was Thank you. Great. Thank you, Karen. It's always a pleasure. Is there anything else you want to share before you go? I'd like to go into like, need- land rights and blah, blah, blah. But I know we'd be talking for another hour or so if we did that because there's so much to cover. Yeah. <laughs> we haven't even touched I on I also don't proclaim to be an expert. I, I don't also proclaim to be an expert in the land rights. And it is that's a really complex issue too. Yeah, it is. For people who aren't listening in, yeah. for some Australians, Basically everything. You until the Mabo decision. Basically, when was that? In the eighties, or this, I wasn't living in Australia at the time. But yep. you had no rights to any land at all. You've been completely dispossessed right. as First Nations people. So Correct. that's a whole yeah. kettle of fish to go into, and doesn't help with that culture. It is. That and that's right. So there, there are significant cultural practices and places, and I know. I know that when we practice culture, how good it, it, it it's a great reset it, for me and my family. I know I struggled with mental health as a teenager. I struggled as, with mental health in my early twenties, and a lot of that was because I was denying my true culture and I wasn't really stepping into that space where I needed to be stepping into. So when things get a bit too much, there's nothing like going up and spending a bit of time on traditional lands or lands that my ancestors walked on and spending some quiet time there and reflecting. and and It's almost like a, you talk about people go to church and pray in religion it's the same sort of thing it, it's a real spiritual connection and it's, it's something that it really recharges and, and refreshes and it's something that uh, it's so important mm. thank you so much you're welcome thank you if you enjoyed this episode be sure to subscribe and rate and review this podcast and share it with your friends And don't forget, if you've been thinking how great it would be to have your own podcast so that you can interview guests and speak to people about the topics that you're interested in personally, head on over to speakuppodcasting.com to find out just how easy and cheap it is for you to start podcasting. There's a download on how to start a podcast for free waiting there for you. Thank you so much for listening. I'll see you next time.